All right, I'll pray and we'll get started this morning. Lord, thanks for your kindness to us. We thank you again that your word is in our language, that we can access your mind, your thoughts, your truth, uh, transcendent realities uh, in English. What a gift that is through uh, faithful uh, servants of yours who put their lives on the line to give us your word in our language. We thank you for our friends who are doing that very thing, uh, for the Doe people in Maui Roro and Papua New Guinea. And we pray that you give them endurance, help them to take each step uh, necessary uh, for your word to be known and heard and read and taught, believed uh, for the Doe people. And we pray that you would strengthen them today to the tasks in front of them and for all those ahead. Uh, Lord, give them success. Even now, be preparing the hearts of the Doe people to receive the gospel and to surrender to Christ. And we pray that you would birth your church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this morning, uh, we're going to study a topic that is familiar to each and every one of us. We're studying sin. And uh, we're going to do so from uh, the perspective of what the Bible says about sin, rather than from an experiential exploration. Okay, those are two different kinds of study of sin. And uh, so you got a big word at the top of your notes there, hamartiology, comes from the Greek word hamartano, I sin, or hamartos, the uh, noun for sin. Hamartiology is just the study of the biblical doctrine of what sin is. And we might all think that we know what sin is, um, but I think it's going to be helpful just to uh, explore a little bit about what the Bible says about sin, because if we get the problem right, it's going to inform the solution. If we understand what sin is, it's going to help us understand what it meant for Christ to become the sin bearer, what it meant for him to take on sin, what it meant for him to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It also helps us understand that the remedy for the world's problems the remedy for the maladies that every human being faces all around us is a supernatural solution. There, there, are, no going to be, there are not going to be any sort of medium solutions to sin. Uh, there are no sort of compromised uh, remedies to this radical problem, but only that God himself would take on flesh and come and bear away our sin. That's the only possible solution. And then the grace of God, which teaches us to deny ungodliness, that reign of grace we've been looking at in Romans, is that which not only forgives our sin, but transforms us from the inside out so that we're no longer slaves of sin under the dominion of sin, but become slaves of righteousness, and then begin to see that worked out in real life. So to see sin accurately is going to help us see salvation and sanctification rightly. Let's consider as we open this morning the words of David in Psalm 51.4. David says, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If you've ever read Psalm 51 and, and read the little heading at the top of Psalm 51, you know that this is the song that David penned, that he harped or lyred, whatever he did, whatever musical instrument was at his disposal, that he sang to the Lord out of a broken-hearted response to the recognition that he was, in fact, the man. 
He was the one who had perpetrated the very evil that David was ready to indict as a hypothetical situation. Remember, Nathan came to him, told him a story, and David said, well, that man should die. And Nathan said, you are that man. And unfolds for him the reality of his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba and against God and against the nation. And we get these striking words in Psalm 51.4 where David is singing to the Lord in his confession psalm against you, God, and against you only, God, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Have you thought about how jarring that song would be if you were, say, Bathsheba? Or if Uriah could have heard that song? Or any of the soldiers who had been in harm's way when David wanted to set up Uriah to be killed by the hands of the enemy? Or by the nation at large that didn't have their king doing what the king was supposed to be doing in the spring? He was hanging out on the rooftops doing things he wasn't supposed to be doing. In fact, it's hard to imagine a single individual in the nation of Israel that David the king did not sin against. And even by way of example, I think there's culpability for David, the man after God's own heart, to have sinned so egregiously, so publicly, so scandalously in ways that even affect us down to this day. I mean, how often have you been tempted to think, or even how often have you heard that that kind of a scandalous sin, listen, if David, who loved God, could sin that way, then my sin must not be that bad. In fact, in some ministry circles, it's become sort of street cred to commit infidelity and to be restored like David still got to be king. Which, by the way, is a non sequitur and is not the way the New Testament describes qualified leadership. But there's a sense in which it's hard to imagine any Bible-reading individual against whom David's sin has not had adverse effects. Now, God's forgiveness and his grace to David has had wonderful effects for all who read Scripture as well. But for David to say, against you and you only I have sinned, it's just staggering. What does he mean by that? D.A. Carson writes, at one level, of course, this is blatantly untrue. David has sinned against Bathsheba, her husband, her child, his family, military high command, and the nation as a whole, which he serves as a chief magistrate. It shouldn't say thief magistrate. I think that's a misprint. Yet there is something profound in David's words. What makes sin sin in the deepest sense, is that it is against God. We let ourselves off the hook too easily when we think of sins along a horizontal axis only. Whether the horizontal sins of socially disapproved behavior or the horizontal sin of genocide. What makes sins really vile, intrinsically heinous, what makes them worthy of punishment by God himself is that they are first, foremost, and most deeply sins against the living God, who has made us for himself and to whom we must one day give an account. That's true. I think that's the import of David's words there. That we have to see our sin vertically and to see it in its proportions against one who is infinitely honorable and one who has been infinitely offended. By the way, the number infinity compared to any finite number creates an infinite chasm, right? There's no comparison. And so to 
set the scales rightly about our sin, we must first think of it in terms of our sin against God. Think about your Bibles for a moment. There is sinless humanity in the first two chapters, and there is sinless humanity in the last two chapters. Everything else in between, a bunch of sin. Lots of sin. It it is the narrative of Scripture. Uh, Humanity's sin and what God is doing about that sin. And by the way, the glory of God is manifested in His relationship to sin. And and throughout Scripture, that really is, in essence, the theme of the Bible. Uh, God's kingly reign seen in His grace towards sinners and His judgment of sinners alike. Everything else in the Bible besides the first two and last two chapters portrays a sin-infected humanity. Sin sets the stage for everything in the Bible. And salvation cannot possibly be understood until we know what it is we are to be saved from. God's activities in the Scriptures cannot be rightly understood apart from a right understanding of sin. And you see this in our culture. If, If humanity starts with the idea that, hey, we're all just human. We all just make mistakes. Then it seems at times that God's outbursts against sin seem disproportionate, irrational, out of control. But if we start with a right understanding of what sin is, then we recognize that every breath that every sinner takes on God's green earth is an undeserved mercy. And that any would ever be saved is God's Infinite, undeserving grace. Really unbelievable. And so a right understanding of sin is critical to all that's in the Scriptures. So what is sin? That's the question we want to try to tackle today. Uh, We will get to questions like where did sin come from? Um, Where did it start? How did it enter the world? Why did sin enter the world? But today let's just start with the question, what is sin? And according to George Zemeck, sin is any personal lack of conformity to the moral character or desire of God. Any personal lack of conformity to the moral character or desire of God. And Dr. Zemeck lists the dimensions of sin as follows. The first dimension of sin is a disposition of the heart. That is, it's a state. Uh, What does my heart feel? Where is it aiming What is it looking towards? What is it affected by? Secondly, sin at the thought level. That is an impulse that comes out of the nature of my heart. An impulse, a desire, an intent. Jesus said in Matthew 27, 28, Matthew 5, 27 and 28, out of the heart comes all of these things. And he lists all the evil, dirty deeds. Thirdly, sin as an act. And fourth, sin as not an act, an omission. Something you didn't do that you should have done. All of these things are categories of sin. And, and by the way, the, the, the common idea that uh, our emotions are off the hook, our intentions are off the hook, um, or that somehow our outward activities are separated from my intentions. I had really good intentions, but what came out of my mouth was vile. Uh, that just doesn't work. That doesn't follow the biblical model. And all of these things are considered a sin Biblically speaking, the disposition of the heart, the thought, the impulse, the intent, the act, and then the failure to act at things we should have done. For us, he says, the sequence of sin begins with the nature and proceeds with the thought, then action or omission. 
And that's different than Adam. With Adam in the garden, the thought preceded the nature. You recognize that in the first two chapters of the Bible, um, it was not inherent to humanity to sin. Right? If, if I had told you the, the fundamental de- definition of a human being does not include sin, you think, what are you talking about? This is heresy. <laughs> Uh, consider Adam and Eve in the garden were fully human and didn't sin yet. Jesus Christ, fully human, never sinned. And for most of your life, you, Christian, will not sin. Have you ever thought about that? You'll be fully human, inner man, outer man, combined together for eternity, unable to sin. Unable to sin. And the, the life you've lived so far on this earth, which has been totally flowing out of the fundamental nature of depravity inside you, all of that will be eradicated. So what you've only ever known to be human is to sin comes with just a couple of exceptions so far. But it will be the norm in eternity. It'll be the norm. We will have already been forgiven of our sin That is, the penalty of sin is gone. For us Christians now in life, the power of sin is gone. You are not a slave to sin. You are under the dominion of grace. And one day you will be free from the very presence of sin. For now, sin comes from our nature. By the way, the fact that sin comes from the nature moves to the intents and the thoughts of the heart and then moves outward into action or omission means you can't blame your little sister. My sister made me do it. You can't blame shift. You can't say, this woman whom you gave me made me do this. You can't blame God. You can't blame your wife. You can't blame Satan for your sin. There is nothing outside of you that can get the blame for your sin. Flows out of our very natures. Uh, Let's talk about the vocabulary of sin. Uh, You may be surprised to find there is more than one word for sin. Uh, There are lots of words for sin, and they all have a bunch of different flavors. What I've done for you in the next couple of pages is just sort of condense the Hebrew dictionary, the Greek dictionary. Uh, You can totally tune out at this point if you want to. Um, I love reading dictionaries. Growing up, I thought reading dictionaries was fun. Um, I may be the only one in this room, so I'm going to read from the dictionary. And uh, you have the notes. You can use these as a resource. But uh, there is a point to all of this. Uh, the first, uh, first word we'll look at is the Hebrew word hata. Uh, it is the most general term for sin. Uh, it, the verb form simply means to sin. That's the way it's most often translated. 1 Kings 8.46, Solomon at the dedication of the temple is saying, there is no one who does not sin. Right? Psalm 51.4, we just read that from David. Against you and you only I have sinned. That's that word. Um, the noun forms of this word are sin and sinner, and at times a sin offering. The adjective form is sinful. And the definition here is a non-moral connotation um, at its root means to miss the mark. So fundamentally, this word was used just, hey, you you missed, you failed. You you didn't meet the standard that was required. In, In its moral sense, this is a very common word and the most general term for sin. Uh, The next word, ta'ah, is to err. To go astray. Um, let's look at Psalm 58.3. And uh, early bird gets the worm. First one to find Psalm 58.3 with a nice loud voice can read that. 
This is the verb to err. Okay, thanks, Dave. Uh, you get the idea that there is a path one is supposed to be on, and to sin is to deviate from that path, to go astray, to err. This is a deliberate wandering and is therefore culpable. culpable. This is not, oh, I, I lost the directions. Uh, my GPS isn't working. Um, this is a deliberate wandering from the truth. In a physical sense, the word describes the drunkard wandering about due to intoxication. And so the, the idea here is a, a culpable erring or going astray. Uh, your next word, avar. Uh, this word doesn't always mean sin. It means to go over, to pass over. It is the, the common word for passing over something. Uh, but it can mean to cross a boundary, to cross a river, to traverse a region. And in the moral context, it means to step over. This is our word for transgress. That means there is a line, you went over the line. You transgress the line. You went out of bounds. And Numbers 14.41, first one, gets it. Okay. And the word there is the, the avar, the, to transgress. There is a command of the Lord, and that command is transgressed. Cross the line. Uh, the next one is uh, sure or sure to turn aside, and it implies a departure from the correct path, Deuteronomy 9.12. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down from here quickly, for your people who brought you out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made a molten image for themselves. Okay. Uh, again, to, to turn aside, if the goal that I should be aiming at is straight ahead, to sin in the flavor of this word is to veer away from that goal, to turn aside to something else, to aim at something else. Uh, the next word is uh, pasha, to rebel or to transgress, 1 Kings twelve nineteen. Okay, that is to go against the reigning authority, to uh, stick your fist up and rebel against God. Okay, Ma'al is the next one, to act unfaithfully or treacherously, page three. Uh, Okav uh, means to be deceitful or insidious. Uh, by the way, the, the names Jacob and Kobe and other derivations come from this name. You know, it's the one who grasps at the heel. Interestingly, that the head of the nation of Israel, right? Israel is the new name for the guy named Jacob. Why was he named Jacob? Because he's grasping at his brother's heel right out of the womb. He's a snake, stealing stuff, right? And then, so that, that word to act deceitfully or insidiously um, is another word for sin. And, and Jeremiah 17.9, uh, someone can look it up or if you know it, just say it. Yeah, so think of all the deceitful, insidious, snaky, treacherous, tricky things in the world. And what makes the top of the list in Jeremiah 17, 9? 
the human heart. The human heart. Listen, we, we do not appreciate the reality of that statement in the ways that we should. And we know that because we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and we distrust everybody else, but we trust ourselves. It's a fatal flaw in the human disposition. And it's one of the sinful realities of the human heart that says, hey, I'm not as bad as you think I am. Your theology textbook says I'm bad, says your heart, but I'm not that bad. It's worse than you think. It's worse than you think. Uh, the next word, to treat violently. Here's a Hebrew word you know, Hamas. It's the, the Arabic word, Hamas, means the same thing as the Hebrew word, Hamas. It means violence, right? Anybody that says Hamas, is, it just means peace. Uh, well, yeah, it means um, the suppression of all enemies and the bringing about of peace by squashing them violently. <laughs> anyway, Hamas just means to treat violently. The noun form is in Genesis 6. Uh, one, uh, someone have, uh, if you're looking ahead, somebody already picked up Job 21, 27. You can read that one. Um, the, the idea that violence is done against God by the sinner is a, a staggering concept. Uh, the next one, ra is just the, the word for badness. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, ra, uh, evil, distress, misery, calamity. Uh, this word can be used for anything from being sick to experiencing a tornado, uh, just bad things. Um, to a general term for that which is morally corrupt. Uh, the next one on the list is rasha for wickedness or wicked. That is spiritual criminality. Um, and then you have uh, asham, to offend or to be guilty. And the primary meaning of that word seems to center on guilt. But it often moves from the act which brings guilt to the condition of guilt to the act of punishment for that guilt. In any particular passage, it's often difficult to determine which thrust that word has. Is it the guilt of doing the thing? Is it the condition of being guilty for having done it? Or is it the punishment due your guilt? All, the word covers all of that spectrum. Uh, your next word is a trouble for sorrow or trouble or wickedness. And this word is frequently associated with the concepts of deception and or fraud. It frequently stresses the consequences of idolatry. Um, and there's some interesting wordplay in, in the prophets, particularly in Hosea. Uh, there are more note sheets back there. If anybody needs a note sheet, great, they're back there. Uh, last one on page three uh, is a word which simply means to act wrongfully. Uh, someone want to read Psalm 71.4? Okay. The wrongdoer there is the noun form. And then the last one in the Hebrew vocabulary list here uh, just means to bend or to twist. Uh, it was used in a non-sin sense uh, in Psalm 38.6. It just means to distort or make crooked, to pervert. Uh, but in a, in a moral context, in a sin sense, the word is often translated iniquity. And it has the idea of perversion. Uh, that is, it was supposed to be one shape, and it's been twisted and bent out of shape. It's not what it should have been. 
I want to look at Isaiah chapter 1, and you can either follow along here on the notes that I've given you, or you can look in your own Bibles. Isaiah 1 is a compilation of much of this vocabulary all in one place. And we'll look at a few of these passages. But you should have in red on your note sheet the, the words, and, and if you want to go to the trouble of linking the, the word on your note sheet up to the funny-shaped words in the dictionary up above, you can do that. Um, but you can just see that these, all of these different flavors of sin show up in a text like Isaiah 1. Isaiah writes, The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. And now God has gone to name-calling. <laughs> the whole vocabulary of sin, of, of every sort and every flavor, God is indicting his own people with. And then even compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. Look down at verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. And listen to this hope. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. It's amazing that after all of this vocabulary list and the comparisons God makes of his people against nations he's already destroyed, that there's any kind of negotiation going on whatsoever. And it's one-sided, but this wonderful invitation, after all of the different flavors and angles of sin, God says, come now, come to me. Let's reason. And here's what I will do with your sin. It's scarlet. It will be white like white wool. It'll be like snow. What an amazing invitation. Verse 20, but if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot, she who is full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe. Down to verse 28, transgressors and sinners will be crushed together. Those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. That is a, that is a chapter with just about every word in the dictionary related to sin thrown at God's people.
who had rejected him and turned after idolatries. Psalm 32 is, a, is another one, although rather than an indictment from God through his prophet Isaiah to a rebellious nation, this one comes by the pen again of David. This one's not an indictment, but a confession. And again, it is a profuse pile of homardiological vocabulary all in one place. It's a song about sin. And you're going to see the various flavors of that here. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Again, this is a, a man who knows God's Kindness appeals to his kindness. David confesses all of the vocabulary words of sin before God. And it's worse than David thought it was. And yet God is gracious and David knows that the man who confesses is blessed. And then he appeals to all of us. Pray in a time of need while God may be found. Really remarkable thing, when you offend somebody and you're aware that you have offended them, uh, does that make you want to get close to them? What does David do here? He, he says, God, you are my hiding place. Right? Normally you would need a place to hide to get away from the wrath of the person you've offended. And David knows the only hope, the only possible hiding place from the wrath of the offended is the very one who was offended. And with all the vocabulary of his sin in view, he says, God, you are my hiding place. Psalm 51 is similar. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities. Verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Again, all of the vocabulary is on display here in David's confession before the Lord. David knows that he has missed the mark, that he has failed, that he has rebelled, that he has been perverted, twisted, that he has crossed the line, he has transgressed. And in David's own confession, he he understands at some level what sin is and is able to agree with God about it from the heart. We turn to the New Testament and pick up a little bit more vocabulary. Uh, Hamartia is the first word. 
Now that's the noun form for sin, and hamartano is the verb, I sin. It means a departure from the standard, uh, to miss the standard, to, to, to walk away from it, to part from it, um, whether it's a human standard or a divine standard. And it's early Greek meaning just simply to miss, to not hit, um, shooting an arrow at something and you miss. Uh, the, the picture the Bible gives us is not that we have wonderful intentions and God's target is up there and I really want to hit righteousness and I'm just barely off the mark and it skims off the side of the target and lodges into a tree by the side. Uh, the, the Bible's picture of the heartbeat of our sin when we miss the mark. It's uh, God puts a target there for us and we turn around away from the target and try to hit him because we don't like him telling us what to do. This is a, a deep disease. Uh, Romans 3.9, somebody want to read that one for us? Pick. Thankfully, this indictment is contained only to Jews and to Greeks, meaning Gentiles or non-Jews. <laughs> Nobody's off the hook, right? It's a universal statement. And Paul goes on to say, all have sinned. There's no one excluded um, from this indictment of sin. Planao is the second word, to wander from the path. Our English word planet comes from this word. The planets were thought to wander across the sky. If you were a stargazer in the ancient world, you saw all these points of light fixed. And then you saw this thing going across the sky, the planet, a wandering star, right? A wandering beam of light. The idea of here, the idea to sin in this way is to wander. It's often used of sheep wandering, of false teachers wandering, of false teachers causing others to wander from the truth. How about 2 Timothy 3, 13? The deceiving there is to cause others to wander while they themselves are wandering. Right? Following false teacher, a category of, of sin, um, is to really have the blind leading the blind to eternal destruction. Uh, the next word, uh, parabasis, is to go aside or transgress. Uh, again, that's the idea of crossing a line. There was a line here, you crossed it, you weren't supposed to go past that line, and you did. Paranomia is lawlessness or evil doing. Uh, Paranomeo is to break the law. Paraptoma is a violation of moral standards or wrongdoing or sin. And this word emphasizes strongly the deliberate acts of sin with its fateful consequences. Uh, it refers directly to the disrupt disruption of man's relation to God through his fault. Parakoe is a refusal to listen uh, and so be disobedient. To be hard-hearted, unwilling to hear, unwilling to obey. It means to refuse to listen so as to obey. Apathia is disobedience. It often describes obstinate refusal to believe the gospel. Uh, anomia is lawlessness. Uh, adikeo is to act in an unjust manner, to do wrong, to mistreat, or to injure. Asabase is the violating of the norms for a proper relationship, relationship to God. It's ungodliness, irreverence, impiety. It's to 
live and act as if God did not exist. Uh, agnoia is ignorance, right? We, we get our word agnostic. Gnosis means to know. Agnosis means to not know. If you meet somebody who says, no, I'm not an atheist, I'm just an agnostic. What's he saying? I am an ignoramus, right? I'm, I'm choosing to not know what I should know and what I will be held accountable for knowing. Right, this idea of ignorance, sometimes you, you read the descriptions, you know, I was, I was acting in ignorance, and so God was gracious to me, Paul says. And we think, oh, good, Paul's off the hook for his former life because he was just ignorant, he just didn't know. No, this is a culpable ignorance. This is a running away from what God has revealed in nature and revealed in every human heart. Uh, and Paul is not getting himself off the hook in his former life. Uh, his statement of his own ignorance is a statement of his indictment. He did not have a, 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 an idea that the word ignorance was some silly, loosey-goosey, well, I just didn't know what was going on mentality, but an abject refusal of what God had actually revealed. Uh, Ophelema is an accounting term. Uh, it means to, to be in the red, to be in debt, uh, to owe a debt, and it's used metaphorically of sin. Uh, kakos is just a word for badness or evil. And uh, kakia is the quality or state of wickedness, page 10, the state of baseness or of depravity. And then pornea is the quality or state of a lack of moral values and baseness. And there are a whole host of um, words related to sexual immorality that come from that word. I want to look at one New Testament passage that portrays, again, profuse piles of homardiological vocabulary where Paul just takes out the dictionary of sin and indicts all of us with it. You know it. It's Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural function for what is unnatural. In the same way, men abandoned natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men, with men committing indecent acts receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. As they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, Although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And Romans 1.18 follows the very theme statement of the book of Romans, right? I, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? 
Because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Why is the gospel the power of God for salvation to all who believe? Because in the gospel, 117, the righteousness of God is made known. Why do men need righteousness from God? Because they don't have righteousness intrinsically, and the wrath of God is being revealed against all of their unrighteousness, Romans 118 and following. And so Paul gives the solution in a sentence in verses 116 and 17, and then unfolds the problem. Uh, All through chapter 1, with the whole vocabulary of sin against the Gentile world, and then in chapter 2, against the hypocrisy of the religious world, or the Jewish world, or the the guy trying to pull himself up by his own moral bootstraps, and then indicts all of humanity in chapter 3. All of us are indicted by the entire dictionary, the Hebrew dictionary and the Greek dictionary in the New Testament, for our sin. And it's sin of all flavors. Missing the mark, crossing the line, erring from the path, rebelling against God, disobedient. As D.A. Carson says, one simply cannot make sense of the Bible without a profound and growing sensitivity to the multifaceted and powerful ways the Bible portrays sin. Why couldn't there just have been one word? Why does the Bible spend so much time detailing these different flavors of sin? Why does it have so many different angles? Because it is a deeper problem than we realize. And and I think not all of the vocabulary in in the Bible is enough to portray and convey to us the the depths of our sin in its offense against God. Douglas Moo says the phrase under sin is important. When when the Bible talks about us outside of Christ being under sin, he says the human plight is not that people commit sins or even that they are in the habit of committing sins. The problem is that people are helpless prisoners of sin. Humans are addicted to sin. They are imprisoned under sin. They are unable to free themselves by anything they can do. Knowing this, God has sent to us not a teacher, not a politician, not a liberator, but one who has the power to set us free from sin. Remember Paul's words in Romans 5, just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Law came in so that transgression would increase, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, so also would grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life in Christ. That phrase, sin reigned, that is the verb form of the word king. Sin kinged. In death, sin dominated. It was the dominion of sin, as John Owen puts it. We were under it. We were victims and perpetrators simultaneously of that domain of darkness and domain of sin. We cannot boil the the human problem down to that guy just needs to get his life cleaned up. a, A radical rescue is required that only the gospel can provide. I want to think on page 11 of some false definitions of sin. And false definitions of sin abound. Uh, Some have said that sin is merely an illusion, right? Christian science uh, today would say that. Uh, The early Gnostics would say that anything physical uh, doesn't really count because it's the spiritual that counts. And if there's physical stuff, that's just an illusion. It's not real. It's kind of the matrix deal. Um, 
And by the way, Christian science um, is neither Christian nor science, kind of like grape nuts. They're not grapes. They're not nuts, right? If you want to know why that was in the notes, I, I, I still don't know why that's in the notes. Made it there somehow. Uh, another false definition of sin is that it's finitude. It, it's finiteness, right? To, to err as human. We, well, we're all just limited, right? The, the idea behind saying that sin is just my finiteness. Number one, it's wrong. And number two, it has a, an intended agenda to get me off the hook. By the way, Adam and Eve were finite in the garden and not sinful. You will be finite into eternity future. You will not be omnitemporal. You will not be omnipresent. You will not be omni anything. You will be bound by time and space and location. And, and you won't be a sinner. Sin doesn't have to do with my finitude, my finiteness, or my smallness. And, and it doesn't have to do with just being human. Uh, to say to err is human is to sort of cast the blame away from my culpability. Another idea is that sin is sensuousness, uh, that is just merely physicality, um, and so uh, it, it can't be evil, it's just normal, uh, physical things, that's just part of uh, our natural existence. Um, and, and there were two responses in, in the ancient world to this idea. One was, since sin merely has to do with the physical, do anything you want because the physical doesn't matter. Or since, since sin has only to do with the physical, Run away from everything physical because it's terrible. And neither one of those is true. Uh, sin starts in the heart, affects the inner man, flows through the outer man as a vehicle, um, through and through. And then the idea of, uh, really this is Robert Schuller brought this into the American consciousness, is that sin is anything that robs a human of self-esteem. And, and I give you a few quotes here. I alluded to this a few weeks ago. Um, give you some of the data here from uh, what Robert Schuller almost single-handedly introduced to the American church uh, via the Hour of Power and the Crystal Cathedral and what was the most watched preaching event weekly, uh, syndicated all over the world for many years. He says, we feel too unworthy. So one layer of negative behavior is laid upon another until we emerge as rebellious sinners. But our rebellion is a reaction, not our nature. By nature, we're fearful, not bad. Original sin is not a mean streak. It is a contrasting inclination. He says, persons suffer from inferiority complexes because they make mistakes, because they're not perfect, and they don't know all the answers. He says, what is guilt but an ugly loss of self-esteem? He says, our primal problem is our lack of trust first in oneself. He said, if there can be one generalized description of the human predicament in the world today, it would be the lack of self-esteem in human beings. He said, the most serious sin is the one that causes me to say, I am unworthy. I may have no claim to divine sonship if you examine me at my worst. For once a person believes he's an unworthy sinner, it's doubtful if he can really honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Jesus Christ. He says, any creed, any biblical interpretation... Any systematic theology that assaults and offends the self-esteem of persons is heretically failing to be truly Christian, no matter how interlaced, interfaced, or undergirded it might be with biblical references. He says, don't quote the Bible at me. Don't read that Hebrew dictionary to me. What a tragedy. 
And the church has bought that hook, line, and sinker. Another false definition of sin is that right and wrong are merely social constructs. They're pliable. Uh, right? As we progress, as we evolve, as we mature as a culture, as society, and our understanding, those definitions of sins can come and go. They're just societal constructions. And one that's popular in our day is to see sin as brokenness. Right? This, this is all over sort of the lyrics of Christian music now. This is uh, in praise songs. And, and people talk about brokenness and we're a community of brokenness and we're all just broken. Um, there's something right about that word. It's not a terrible adjective to describe the human condition, right? We're not what we should be. The, the human constitution is not what it was originally designed and not what redeemed humanity will be one day. There's a right sense in thinking that it is broken, but that word's not complete. If, if all we talk about in terms of our sin is our brokenness, we, we're removing from ourselves culpability. And, and I think intentionally so, if that becomes the, the mantra or the way we describe our sinfulness all the time. Listen, I don't, need to, I don't need to get into your life and talk about your mess, and you don't need to get into my life and talk about my mess, because we're all broken. We're just, it's just broken. And, and brokenness becomes the label over which we just make everything acceptable. And that's not the way the Bible portrays either sin or our response to sin. And then a really common one is just to see sin as a mistake. Hey, I just made a mistake. What do you want me to do? Well, the Bible has a lot of things that we're to do about sin. And there may be many others. Just off the cuff, you think of any other uh, misdefinitions of sin? Anything come to mind? What was that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the only thing that can be counted as sin is something I deliberately do or deliberately refuse to do. Yeah, out of just, hey, it flows out of my nature. It flows out of who I am. Anything else? We've talked about sin a whole hour. And we need to stop. Our, our culture would love for us to stop, right? I'll leave you this quote from D.A. Carson. The deep cultural animus against the category of sin means that many preachers much prefer to talk about weaknesses, mistakes, tragedies, failures, inconsistencies, hurts, disappointments, blindness, anything but sin. And the result is that biblical portrayal of God is distorted, as is his plan of redemption. All right, uh, next time we'll get into the origin of sin, how it came into the world, um, and those kinds of things. If you have questions um, about uh, any of the things we have talked about or things you see in the notes coming up, feel free to email or text those, and we'll try to address those in class. You're dismissed.